Okay, we are live. Joining, joining us today, of course, is Alexander Mercurius in London. And we are very honored and very happy to have our good friend, Mr. Larry Johnson from the amazing blog Sonar 21. The link is in the description box down below. I will have it as a pinned comment as well. Alexander, before we uh, we went live, Alexander, what did you say to Larry? The the blog that I start my morning with. What did you say? Absolutely, Alexander? absolutely. When I when I, when I uh, when I get up in the morning, it's the first place I go to. I just want to see what Larry's been writing over the last uh, couple of hours. And it's always there. There's always a there's always an interesting piece, always something to read. Fantastic. And in, interesting, analytically interesting, analytically important and very succinct, if I may say so. I mean, and I speak for myself against myself here. When I used to write, I don't write much anymore. I used to write, you know, page after page after page. It's a lawyer's <laughs> thing. So it's all over the place. But you know, with, with Larry, you can go very quickly to the point. You can see exactly the point he's trying to make. He's somebody who does it in few and pithily, pithy words, very well-chosen words. Oh, that, that's, the, right. that's, that's courtesy of the CIA training, believe it or not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so let's uh, say a quick hello to everybody that is watching us on <clears throat> Rumble, on Odyssey, Rockfin, mm. Telegram, and thedoran.locals.com, and everybody that is also watching us on YouTube. And a big shout out to our amazing moderators. Zariel, I see you in the chat. I hope you're doing well, Zariel. And I think it is just Zariel and, and me. We will be moderating as we get started with this uh, live stream. So. Alexander, Larry, uh, let's start talking about what is happening with the big counteroffensive real quick. Uh, Larry, you were our first live stream guest in 2023. And I think around that time, that's when we started to get a lot of talk about right. this big counteroffensive mm -hmm. that is being cooked up. And here we are six months later and uh alexander larry where are we well i think larry described it very well a couple of weeks ago he called it the kamikaze offensive and that's exactly what it is and you know we can be flippant about this but i'm hearing about ten thousand people are dead there's some absolutely horrifying reports coming through about um what's ha actually happening on the front lines that apparently the smell from the decomposing bodies is over you know all over the sort of battlefronts that um and that russian soldiers are themselves shocked by some of the sights they've seen and not just in this one village piatikhatki which i've been talking quite a lot about on my program but apparently in so several other places as well and the incredible thing is that this offensive has been going on now for about two and a half weeks by my uh, calculations. And Ukraine has achieved nothing. I mean, they haven't yet even reached the main Russian fortified lines. They're still stuck fighting over the same string of villages that they were fighting over two and a half weeks ago. And it is the kamikaze offensive. It is a 
terrible thing. Only, of course, these were unwilling kamikazes. The people who were in those kamikaze planes, those Japanese pilots, well, they were indoctrinated. They had all kinds of religious beliefs, which was difficult for us to understand. But they willingly did what they did. These people, the Ukrainian soldiers, one gets the sense that in many cases they have been deceived or led into this battle um, expecting some quick, easy victory, told that the Russians would turn and flee, and it hasn't worked like that. And I think other points that Larry made, I mean, he made an absolutely brilliant post again some weeks ago, talking about this Frankenstein collection of weapons that Ukraine has been provided, tanks from one place, infantry fighting vehicles from another, all of these things cobbled together. It doesn't really work. Training to operate the one doesn't really teach you much about how to operate another. The logistics is a nightmare. Only today, just a few minutes ago, just before we started this program, I was reading, I think it was the New York Times, they're saying 30% of these weapons are out of repair at any one time because the logistical tail has broken down. I mean, that's basically what it's saying. I mean, it tries to spin it slightly differently. It says these are old weapons. Things aren't, you know, as reliable as they might be. But it's logistics. The logistics isn't working. And, of course, he asked the rhetorical question, how good is Ukraine's logistics? What is their logistical style? Nobody's really come up with any kind of explanation. Because if you do what I have to do every day, listen to the British media, read the British newspapers, nobody ever talks about these things. They never, ever discuss these things. Even British army officers, and Larry has had some very choice things to say about some of them, (laughs) Colonel Colonel Kemp being one, um, who, by the way, is now starting to have doubts. He's warning his readership that the Ukrainian offensive, we've got to be ready for the fact that the Ukrainian offensive might, might be about to falter. But none of these people talk about these things. They they don't discuss them. I've never known a conflict where people have been so catastrophically misinformed. And as I point out many times, my memory goes back to Vietnam. <laughs> I, mean, I can remember maybe it was the later part of Vietnam when people were starting to be a bit more honest about how bad things were. But, I mean, I've never known a time when a war has been as catastrophically badly reported as this. So, kamikaze offensive, we've pushed it, we forced the Ukrainians into doing it, they weren't keen to do it, and here we are. So that's that's what I wanted to say about the offensive. I don't know what, uh, I'm sure Larry has much to add, and I mean, I should say, by the way, that your ability, Larry, to keep track of all these propagandists and people yeah. come out is just astonishing. I don't know where you find the stomach, frankly, to deal with these people, because I frankly am beginning to become very angry about about reading them. Yeah, well, I, I, I share your anger and your disgust. Uh, it, really, this is, so, I, you know, I'm old enough, I'm 68. Uh, I do remember the Vietnam War and uh, I was on the tail end my my year eighteen when I turned eighteen was the last year that they ended the draft, uh, so uh, I go back to that and 
even during the height of the Cold War or the depths of it, however you want, however you want to portray it, when the United States and the Soviet Union almost went to nuclear war over the Cuban Middle Crisis, even during that time, there was still a foundation for diplomatic discussion between the United States and Soviets. There were still exchanges, and, and you know, they, they, there's not this vitriol that we see right now. And then this vitriol that's coupled with complete delusion, complete, uh, it's lying. There's no other way to, to portray it. Um, when, you, when you have generals like Hurtley or Trance or Ben Hodges, I mean, Hodges is, you know, stands head and shoulders above the rest as being the absolute dumbest man on television, uh, to portray what's going on in Ukraine with the Ukrainian army and ignoring everything that they learned as professionals. Uh, number one, you do not train a military force with 40 different teachers in 40 different languages. Uh, you know, I'm exaggerating a bit, but it was, you know, the other day we saw <clears throat> uh, Millie bragging about the fact that, oh, we've got 6,000 troops, Ukrainian troops. They're being trained in 40 locations in 33 different countries and then taking 65 different courses. Now, I'm not really good at math, but I can figure out that with that sort of lineup, uh, you're not getting any kind of effective training. And when you're training in different countries, you're dealing with cultural differences, you're dealing with language differences, and you're dealing with different military traditions. So you're not getting a common thread of training. And the real problem Ukraine faces is not necessarily the training for the frontline troops, the guys driving the tanks or running off the armored personnel carrier. <clears throat> the problem they have is they do not have the mid-level and senior officers experienced with maneuver warfare, which means that they know how to use combined arms. And when you talk about combined arms, think about yourself. You're out somewhere on the steps of Ukraine, and all of a sudden, you see a Russian uh, emplacement or uh, position. Okay, so first, you've got to be able to report that. you got to know where you are. You have to be able to report it back to someone. And then that someone has to be in a command position where they can say, okay, well, we can send some artillery, but that means you got to know where the artillery is. Or we can send some drones, or we can send some fixed-wing aircraft, or we can send some helicopter. You know, so there's a whole variety of it's. Think of yourself as a musical conductor. You're you're all calling on all these different different instruments to come to play at this particular location. And when you compound that, that you're not talking about just one person. That spread it out over six thousand, ten thousand people then you begin to appreciate somewhat the complexity that's involved. And instead of NATO and this preparation of, for Ukraine's counteroffensive, instead of focusing upon the training them to be able to maneuver and operate in this fashion, they put together, it's like, you know, a uh, hundred different bands and nobody's coordinated with anybody else. And yet you get them all show up and play the same sheet of music. It's not good. It's I said at the time, it's not going to happen. And as we've seen, it's not 
happening. And and and, and Alexander, you you correctly noted, just it is horrific the human cost of this for the Ukrainians because these these Ukrainian troops that are going forward, they're brave. Uh, some of them have uh, you know some very twisted uh, political views, but nonetheless, they are being literally thrown into a suicide mission. And uh, that's why, you know, I wrote a piece the other day uh, accusing General Milley of uh, the United States, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, of criminal misconduct. This is, this is military malpractice at a criminal level, in my view, because he knows better. He's had enough training, and you know that you can't do this to troops. You have, as a commander, a responsibility to those uh, men that you're sending forward into conflict. And it's just, it's appalling. I completely agree with this. And I'm very glad you made that point, actually. Because I have I just don't understand General Milley at all. Because he gives these comments every so often, which show that at some level, he understands exactly what's going on. He He's not a fool. He has the, as you said, the professional training of a senior military officer. He talks about the need for negotiations. He says that it's not realistic to think that Ukraine can retake all its territory this year. <laughs> and at the same yeah. time, whenever any decision comes up, he goes along with the most, the, a decision which he must know will eventually lead to disaster. Now, I, I just don't understand somebody who commands men commands men in battle or who's been trained to command men in battle who can do that i mean it's we have this um, you know there's a famous um, history book about the first world war in britain when you know the british soldiers in the first world war were sent to die in attacks on the german trenches and we said lions led by donkeys but you know, uh -huh. Colonel Milley is <laughs> Colonel Milley is not a donkey. I mean, you listen to him. I mean, he's he's not somebody who just doesn't understand what he's doing. He's not, you know, one of these sort of upper class British officers who, with no imagination, who just goes on sending the troops into battles and sees them slaughtered. He's that isn't what he's about at all. And yet he goes on doing this. And for me. That tells us where the source of this whole crisis is, because clearly he has become somebody who's become such so much a part of the Washington system that he can't really think yeah. outside it. Uh, and I have to say, it's very chilling. And God help us if he ever finds commanding, if, if they ever end up commanding American soldiers in that kind of situation. I hope the American people will never allow it to happen. Yeah. The, the, well, part of the problem is that when you look at the education, even for Millie, uh, the in his his career span, they've never fought in an actual war. And by that, what I mean by that, where you're up against a, a military peer, a country that has the same uh, sort of capabilities that you do with artillery, with fixed wing aircraft, with uh, the intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, the ISR component. Uh, basically, we've been we've been beating up on the kids in wheelchairs, to, to put it in a crude term that way. You know, when you're fighting 
the the Iraqis, the Iraqi army was uh, they had no match. They, they, they were not in any position to fight us uh, on uh, on an even basis. And even there, we struggled a little bit. Uh, yeah, Afghanistan, you know, we, we U.S. troops in Afghanistan never sustained, never faced sustained artillery fire. At, at worst, they faced mortar fire, an occasional mortar. But even that was not uh, being carried out hour after hour, as is happening right now in Ukraine. So what you have is a collection of military leadership in the West that has zero experience with what Russia is doing to Ukrainian troops. And the solutions that they're offering have, you know, zero relevance. Back, you know, when I, my first year at the CIA, they, they put through a 12-week paramilitary course. The reason for that was because so many of the new hires coming into the CIA at the time did not have any military experience. And part of that training was to put us in positions where you were conducting field operations, carrying a backpack that weighed maybe 90 pounds and hiking through terrible terrain. And they, they wanted you to understand what it took physically for just an individual soldier to operate in the field. Because when you, you know, the way it's presented in movies, they're never, you know, uh, bogged down with heavy equipment. And yet, if you're carrying any amount of ammunition, uh, I don't know if you uh, have ever had a hundred rounds of, uh, uh, of uh, M16, you know, the two five five six round carrying that, that's pretty heavy. And then if you add on to that uh, a radio with what they, these, these radios that were called Prick 77s, uh, with the batteries, uh, you know, all of a sudden you're, you're carrying over a hundred pounds and you're trying to move through difficult terrain and, and, and you realize this is, this is really hard. And so then you compound that when you put it into the context of what's going on in Ukraine, where you've got entrenched positions and then you have to, within those entrenched positions, you have to figure out a way to make sure that the, the soldiers manning them are fed, have ample supply of ammunition or can be resupplied and then the communication of course so again it gets to be very complex and and the reality is none of the u.s generals have actually had that kind of experience uh, on this level they are completely ill prepared for it and you're seeing that in the results of what's happening now with the, this you know, much better ukrainian uh, counteroffensive. remember it was being when we first talked in January, February, it was being advertised like, you know, the summer blockbuster that's going to show up, you know, coming in July, June. Well, the, the blockbuster showed up and it turned out to be a flop. And unfortunately, it, you know, we're not talking about entertainment. We're talking about, as you correctly noted, the lives of, of men are just being wasted. And, and they're also being terribly wounded. And uh, we'll be carrying the carrying these scars with them for a lifetime. You were talking about a peer opponent, an opponent that's you know uh, space observation techniques, electronic warfare, can pile on artillery densities. I'm reading today in the Financial Times about the effectiveness of Russian helicopter gunships. 
Well, who would have thought it? I mean, you know, the Russians have helicopter gunships. I mean, the other the other extraordinary thing is this complete lack of knowledge about Russia. And when we had the Soviet Union, when we were you know pitted against the Soviets, we you know in the West we did understand that they did have a formidable military, that they had most of the things, in fact, pretty much all of the things that we had. Maybe some of their equipment was not as good as ours. That's what we were told. I don't know whether that's true or not, but that's what I remember hearing people say. But we were always told there were a lot of them. They were well-equipped. They were well-trained. They had a big industrial base behind them. We took them very, very seriously in those days. Now, I have to say, I think that people in the West, we are oblivious to the realities of today's Russia. And you've been writing very well about this also, um, Larry, if I may say so. Um, we've gone from a situation where, if anything, we overestimated the Soviets to a situation where we have catastrophically underestimated <coughs> today's Russians. You know, their, their tanks are not up to our standards. Their helicopter gunships, well, as I said, nobody, I think, you ask most people in Britain who follow news. I don't mean, you know, most people. I just mean those people who follow news. The idea that the Russians had advanced helicopter gunships comparable to ours. That's just not something people were ever told about or thought about. It was assumed there were a lot of them, that it was, you know, like the sort of horde that would sweep across Ukraine. But if it encountered Western weapons, it would basically turn tail and run or break down. It wouldn't be able to sustain it. And of course, the Russians weren't able to sustain arms production. I can tell you, back in March of last year, the Daily Telegraph was writing pieces about how Russia was about to run out of missiles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you got a dollar for every article that was written saying, oh boy, Russia's running out, you know, they're tapping, uh, going dry. Uh, you know, we would be wealthy if we could uh, you know, collect on that. It is, you know, what's remarkable that people fail to, you know, they fail to grasp. Russia's entire national defense industry is built upon a strategy of national defense. They're, they're not designing uh, weapon systems that, that satisfy a particular corporate interest. And in other words, what they are creating has got to be functional within their system because Russia is not sitting back saying, boy, what country do we need to go conquer this year? Uh, Russia and even the former Soviet Union did not have a record of global colonial military uh, adventures, as has been the case for the United States, the United Kingdom, Germany. France, you know, Italy, you know, run down the list. Um, every, you know, the West always sits back and accuses Russia of empirical, uh, this uh, imperial ambitions, when in fact the one the countries that have been engaged to that are in the West. And so, what Russia creates are weapon systems that are both practical and functional, and designed to integrate at a variety of levels so that you know the the AK47 which is you know that that's an old rifle in terms of its development but the nice thing about it is 
you can put it in the mud, you can put it in water, you can have a soldier who may not be that terribly you know, well-educated and who doesn't have good maintenance skills, and that, that firearm will continue to operate. Whereas the, the United States is renowned for creating sophisticated weapon systems that are fragile, and that when they get out in the field and they get uh, you know bumped around and, and hit, uh, they don't function. Uh, th that's why I've just you know we've heard Donald Trump say the United States has got the greatest military in the world, and my rejoinder to that has been, no, the United States has got the most expensive military in the world, and I've always likened it to it's a Lamborghini with no tires. You know, it looks really nice and it's got some very slick uh, technological aspects, but in terms of being able to field it and operate it and use it. Um, you know, take the M1 Abram tank there the, the, to try to put it out into the field and into the steps of Ukraine right now. It's, it's just too heavy. It's too big. It's not going to it's not going to operate in that environment. And, and so Russia's design of its various weapon systems have always, I think, been looking at it from the practical standpoint of if we have to use this to fight off an invader. How's it going to work? And how do we make sure that it can work and integrate with other weapon systems? The one thing with Russia is, you know, well, they're, they're actually, they're, they're ahead of the game on many fronts. Electronic warfare. Uh, you know, the West doesn't even have anything approaching that. I, I spent over 20 years doing counterterrorism exercises, but these were full up with uh, the, the, the U.S. Special Operations Forces and we would work with the European Command or the Africa Command or the Pacific, what was then called Pacific Command. And never during any of those exercises did we actually look at and script for the use of electronic warfare as a component. And you need to practice, uh, you know, those elements. Uh, air defense, the, the entire Russian air defense system is, uh, they, they just send George W. Bush a thank you note. Because it was George W. Bush who walked away from the anti-ballistic missile treaty, unilaterally withdrew. And even back then, the Russians were saying, wait, what are you doing? And, you know, the United States thought that, well, we're so good, we're so superior, we're going to launch off on this. And uh, Russia said, okay. And Russia proceeded to construct both with the S-300 and then the S-400 and they've got the S-350 and now the S-500 and the S-550. You know, they've come up with multiple systems that actually work and they work effectively uh, in contrast to the grossly expensive and, and, and ineffective Patriot battery system. Mm. So the, the, it is the defense procurement process in the United States actually ends up directing the kind of weapon systems the West is creating and deploying. Mm -hmm. It's not being created and deployed according to a strategic plan or a strategic vision. Uh, and this is a point that Andrei Matyanov has made in his books. I mean, his books really were, were breathtaking and, and showed much foresight. Uh, but what, once you understand that, that what you've got going on is NATO and the West are, are very subservient to corporate interests mm -hmm. and Part of the weapon systems you buy, well, you got to support that particular company because when I retire as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I'm going to get a slot on that board. You don't have that going on in Russia. And so it's 
in a sense, Russia has a much cleaner, uh, uh, more um, effective approach for creating these weapon systems. I, I completely agree with this. Can I just say a few things about this? I mean, firstly, um, one of the blessings of doing these, these programs is you get lots of people who contact you, the military engineers, um, um, particularly one of them. I, I'm not going to say who he is, though he is an intelligence officer, former intelligence officer from a NATO country. He was a military engineer who also worked in Russia and actually went to some of these factories. They knew what he was, by the way, but they still, you know, quite happy to let him see some of these things. And of course, he saw these factories with an engineer's eye, which I have also visited some of these factories. Um, and again, I wasn't supposed to be in one of them, by the way. But, you know, they again knew that I wasn't an intelligence officer, fairly obvious. But they still let me go. But of course, I wasn't able to understand everything that I saw. But I did understand certain things that these are built. These factories are built for war which ours are not. I mean, they, they are very big. They have enormous overcapacity. They are not the kind of places that would make much sense in the West. You would not want to keep large numbers of machine tools standing idle, for example. But they are there yeah. pretty big volumes <clears throat> when needed. And at the moment, the Russians are just was reading late early today again that you know they're producing apparently around three and a half million shells a year now germany's down to twenty thousand. <laughs> that, that gives you this is yeah. the mighty german industrial machine i mean i don't mean they're producing twenty thousand shells a year i'm saying that their stock of shells that they have left is twenty thousand. so that that gives you some idea of the incredible mismatch and the people who run these places are not ex-military officers. They are engineers. They are actually people who come from engineering backgrounds. And yes, they talk with the military all the time. They have inspectors coming from the military. They go Russian weapons and go through the most incredible protracted testing programs before they're introduced into service. This has all been explained to me in great detail. But they're not, there isn't the revolving door. The yeah. military does one thing, the engineers do something else. They talk to each other, they sit on the same committees. There's a whole structure going all the way up to the Kremlin that decides how, you know, weapons, what sort of weapons the military needs and how they are to be produced. But the revolving door concept simply doesn't exist there. It is exactly as you say. It is much cleaner. And here is something that I really do not understand. And it goes straight to the issue of intelligence. Now, this man whom I was talking about, who went to these factories, saw them, commented about them. Um, he was an intelligence officer for a time. You're an intelligence officer. I used to read about the kind of intelligence assessments that would used to be done in the United States. How the United States, in the old days, they would look at a factory, they'd look at the size of the factory, they'd learn about the engineer who was working there, they would learn about the supply chains. They would try and work out from this kind of hard intelligence what that factory was capable of producing, the right. volumes, the organization, that kind of thing. 
And a couple of months ago, somebody sent me what I suspect was a intelligence-sourced paper produced by the Jamestown Foundation. It was all about costs, <laughs> about how much it costs to build a shell in Russia in 2003 and what we can extrapolate from that today about how much, how many shells the Russians could make. And, you know, this is not, they didn't look at any of the things I would have thought that you needed to look at right. in order to understand what the actual, the real capability was. I mean, am I wrong? Did, yeah, no. Am no. I, I mean, is this the sort of thing that, I mean, was that what the CIA used to do? I got the impression that it once did and that yeah. it did superbly well. But apparently they don't do that anymore. Yeah, no, I, uh, you're exactly right. In fact, I, I'm shocked because as I started digging into this, I was dealing with open source information. And it was not very, you know, it didn't require a lot of work to come up with the information that, number one, Russia from the standpoint of natural resources that are required for the production of, of weapon systems was self-sufficient, independent. Russia did not have to rely upon imports from some country in Africa or Asia or in South America. They had, it was self-contained. So, you know, that's a, an important point. And then to recognize there was not a survey of Russian industry. They, they continued with this concept that Russia is just uh, a country, uh, a gas station masquerading as a country, I guess was John McCain's derisive comment about it, um, without any appreciation for the industrial foundation that the heart uh, of Russia. And, and, and again, that comes out of the experiences of World War II. Uh, the difference is because of the, the, the suffering and the, the, the slaughter that the Soviet and the Russian people endured in World War II, it's left an, a lasting memory that they're not going to go back and repeat that if they can avoid it. Whereas in the United States, there was, you know, we suffered very few casualties. 470,000 total in both Europe and Pacific theaters, all, all you know, four years of the war. Uh, you know, that would, the, the Russians lost that many at the Battle of Kursk, or they lost twice that many at the Battle of Kursk. Just, you know, put into context. As a result, that, that industrial giant that was the United States during World War II, it's gone. Yeah. It's disappeared. And the fact that the intelligence community did not provide a proper assessment of looking at the production of what was Russia's capability of ramping up production of tanks, planes, shells, ammunition of different calibers, uh, other vehicles, th that assessment just wasn't done. Instead, oh, let's impose the sanctions and Russia's going to collapse. These people really believe that. And, you know, when, when this history, when, the, when, when this period is written about by future historians, I'm an optimist. I hope we do have a future. Yeah. But uh, they're going to look back and look at the look at the decisions made by the United States and NATO last year as as some of the most stupid things ever in history world leaders. Because it literally set the West on a course to a side. 
it freed Russia and now China into creating a genuine multipolar world that is going to that is completely outside the control and will be outside the control of the West. The ability of the West to control and dictate events has been transformed by this. And again, mm. that's the kind of thing you would have expected in an intelligence assessment. And it didn't happen. It happened, they completely ignored it. But I, I think we would have heard about it if that had been written and presented as uh, as uh, one thing said. In fact, that gets to the heart of the problem in the West right now. The, the, the influence of politics into the intelligence profession are now subject that you can't touch or you can't talk about. Um, this is, it, it is now more pervasive than it's ever been. I mean, it was, it's always been there in some form or fashion. I experienced it a little bit when the war in Central America was going on and we, we started to write about the, the problems that the Contras were running into militarily. And I lectured at one of the warning meetings by the National Intelligence Officer for Latin America, a guy named Bob Vickers. He goes, you can't call them the Contras. You've got to call them the Nicaraguan Democratic Resistance. And I, you know, I said, well, the president calls them the Contras. And he goes, yeah, but he's the president. So, you know, <laughs> interjection of politics and language ends up shaping or preventing what you could actually like. That's happening on a much broader scale. So you, I cannot imagine an analyst being walking in with a piece saying, Let, let's put this into perspective why Russia is going to prevail. I don't think that would be allowed. Yeah. And the other thing is, one gets the sense that politicians are, are becoming dangerously ignorant about the state of our own countries. Now, I don't know whether you read this extraordinary piece that appeared a few days ago in Politico. Which clearly, I think now. I mean, I'm, I should say, a grizzled veteran of bureaucratic power struggles. So, this had all the look of something that came out of that. But I was talking about um, the state of American deindustrialization, the fact mm -hmm. that America no longer has the industrial capacity to do what it did in the 1940s, which is just quickly crank out, you know, unlimited numbers of tanks. Uh, aircraft, whatever it was required to do during the Second World War, because the industrial base isn't there, because the skills right. aren't there, because the engineers aren't there in sufficient numbers, yeah. because the skilled workers aren't there in sufficient numbers, because the factory space isn't there. Now, Larry, you've been talking about this long before this conflict began. I mean, this you've been talking about the deindustrialization of America. I know other people who've been talking about this. I mean, people from the finance side, actually. People like, you know, um, Mitch Feinstein, that we were, Feinstein, that we had a live stream. He's been talking about the fact that America has been deindustrializing without noticing. <laughs> but again, I get the impression that politicians, the political class, just didn't see it. That they were just blind to this. And they thought, they still think that they're, you know, steaming ahead on this big industrial chariot that's, uh, that the United States used to be, even within my own, you know, lifetime, I can remember, you know, in the 70s, you know, how much, you know, the enormous industrial power that the United States has had yeah. in those days. So, you know, again, Politico, United States now accounts for 1% of the 
of global shipbuilding capacity. China between 45 and 50 percent. And it asks, how are we going to compete in a naval race with the Chinese, given that kind of imbalance? Well, it's I'm coming up on my 50th high school reunion and in chatting with some of my uh, friends from back in that era. As we look back, my father was a maintenance foreman at the Armco steel plant, previously called Sheffield Steel out of uh, the UK. Um, uh, other friends, their fathers were foremen or mechanics at places like Bendix Corporation, uh, Armco uh, 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 Standard Oil. So it was all our, our parents, they're all working class, middle class, but they work in industrial jobs. That doesn't exist anymore. That's gone. All of those, uh, uh, Alice Chalmers was a farm implement, uh, would make harvesters and such gone. So once you eliminate that industrial base in the United States, it ends up spreading throughout society in terms of social effects, because all of our parents, by virtue of having those good paying industrial jobs, they could at least afford to build up a retirement and have have a decent lifestyle. Now, what your options are, to go into the service industry and get good at uh, taking orders for hamburgers or, or, or chicken, fried chicken, um, or running a restaurant, the, which is not actually producing anything that's going to be lasting and productive. And then it gets into the educational side of it. Even go back to when we were talking about the military, the, the original purpose of West Point was to train engineers. And the, and the the expectation was that if you went to West Point, you were going to have to learn math and physics and geometry, you know, the, the, across the board. You got turned out to be an engineer. Now, I, I think the majority of the cadets at West Point are studying political science, diversity, equality, and, and, and you know, intolerance, who knows. Uh, so they've lost that edge. Whereas in Russia, the the average high school student, not the top performer, the average high school student in Russia has more math and science uh, than the top performing students in the United States. So it's just the difference of the educational system and the expectation. And then that goes to creating uh, a class of people that can actually go to the factories, do the work and understand how to make you know, how to add and subtract it at a minimum. And so the, the West is, uh, it's shocking how, how much we've turned away from what uh, was once considered sort of the fundamental. And then that ends up being reflected in how these military systems fail to operate effectively. Mm-hmm. And, and you wind up with systems that, uh, you know, are grossly expensive and not terribly effective on the battlefield. You know, remember uh, a year ago we were having the, you know, Scott Ritter and I had a brief debate uh, about the, the HIMARS being a quote, game changer. And my point at the time was, eh, it's just another weapon system. It's not going to alter the course of a war. It might make the Russians a little more angry, but it's not going to change the face of this war. And, you know, we've gone through, you know, additional uh, 
Waffen, you know, the wonder weapons that have been, oh, we're going to put this in there and that's going to turn it. And now we're going to get the tanks and those leopard tanks. Boy, that, that's going to really be the, 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 the game changer. And, and it turns out it's not. What, what really changes the game are well-trained personnel that know how to operate in a coordinated fashion. That's the yeah. game changer. And, and volumes. And I think if you go to the HIMARS, I think this is because this is actually uh, something that's been explained to me. I, I, I just passed it on there. Because HIMARS is a multiple rocket launch system. Now, the, the Soviets basically developed this concept, and it was supposed to be a cheap, simple system where you fired vast numbers of unguided rockets and you saturated the battlefield with them and it was they were cheap they're very easy to make they could be produced in huge quantities and very simply and you know integrated into the battlefield and used very effectively so the united states took that concept and of course they decided that it had to be precision guided so that immediately made it much more expensive and it meant that um, obviously, you know, one of these missiles could hit a target much more effectively than the unguided ones, but it could not be produced in anything more than a fraction of the quantities right. that, that, that the original Russian one could. Now, the point is the Russians saw the HIMARS, and this isn't new. I mean, they were aware of it for a long, long time. And they said, we need to build something like that ourselves. We need to have that capability also. So they created the tornado type systems, which are the Russian equivalent of the HIMARS. And they print and they make them. But alongside those, they still continue to make the enormous volumes of unguided rockets as well. So they don't say, you know, you know, we want it has to be one or the other. They say we're going to have both because sometimes we need the volumes and sometimes we need the precision. Whereas in the United States, there is no attraction to building the volume ones because there isn't very much profit to be made from making large volumes of cheap, unguided rockets. I mean, mm -hmm. it's as simple as that. So it, it's the financial the profit motive, if you like, which pushes yeah. you towards the more advanced system, which the Russians, of course, are now jamming anyway, because uh, because of the electronic warfare things that you said. But that's that's I think a, uh, it's a good case study of of how you know it it's it's a good idea in theory, but it's not thought through in practice. You can be yeah, very and... effective, but it's not. It can't be used by itself. Now, people forget how the uh, politics of intrude on this. So, for example, uh, it, I think many might assume that there's somebody within the Department of Defense or a group of bodies sit at the top who are responsible for putting together a coherent plan of, boy, what are we going to need two years, five years, ten years down the line? What sort of aircraft do we need? No, that's not what happens. Number one, you've got inter-service rivalry. So the Army has its own view of what should happen. The U.S. Marine Corps has its own view of what should happen. The U.S. Air Force has its own view and the U.S. Navy. Now, each of those want to have their own kind of aircraft. And so it's driven more by that service. Now, they've tried to 
with the, like the F-35, that was going to be the one point that would service all the needs. And it, it, it's been a failure, uh, an expensive failure at that. So, and then even within those services, like within the U.S. Army, the difference between conventional Army and the U.S. Special Operations Forces, uh, you know, it's, it's like the book, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. You know, the, the, they're diametrically opposed and would be looked down upon each other as not being, you know, having the same capable capability and competence. So th those political influences come to bear. And then when the, the military industrial complex that has continued to grow, uh, you know, that's why I've, you know, I've written several articles where I draw up on that Saturday night live skit using more cowbell where, you know, the United States answer has always been more military spending. It doesn't matter what happens. Soviet Union collapses. Oh, my God, we've got to spend more because now we don't know what's going to happen. And then the uh, the war on terrorism. Oh, we've got to spend more on that. And so it, the, the, the defense grow and balloon, regardless of what happens in the world. So that's why we come back to what we talked about earlier. It's not being guided by a strategic vision or, or a mission. What is the mission? From the Russian standpoint, their mission is quite clear. We're going to protect our country from being invaded or threatened from outside. And to that end, we're going to develop weapon systems that will protect us, both shield us from missile attacks and uh, thwart ground attacks. Real simple. And this, the fact that we don't understand these things, or at least we don't have these things, well, it can work so long as we don't do exactly what you were talking about, which is go head to head with a peer opponent. Yeah. And the casual way in which it's been done is really, again, the astonishing thing for me. Um, I mean, the assumption that the sanctions were going to work in the first place, that I do think is the greatest intelligence failure of all a complete misjudgment of the Russian economy, of its diversities, of its resources, of its strengths, of its management systems, of its financial stability, all of those things. Mm -hmm. But so, you know, you didn't you don't look at that. You don't look at, as I said, its military production capabilities. You don't really think about these things, but you just it seems drift into these confrontations. In fact, you don't drift in them. You embrace them <laughs> because that's what some of our leaders, I mean, you know, British leaders are, are, are actually worse about this than um, American leaders are. I mean, the, the British have been far more belligerent, if that's possible, about this war and about Russia than um, American leaders have been. Yeah. And, you know, you ask... What capabilities does Britain actually have that would match us in a, in a struggle against the Russians? And I read somewhere that we could perhaps put together 25,000 men mm -hmm. in about five years to carry out an expedition somewhere. That is not an exaggeration, by the way. No, 25,000 no. men is less than Ukraine lost in battle. Yeah. Well, in fact, if you, uh, I think the, the current... Uh, size of the British military is 75,000. And that's, you know, that, that's everybody. That doesn't mean that those are actual frontline combat troops. 
which, you know, your number of 25,000, I think, is right on target. It is the, what I find so puzzling. And we saw David Petraeus, you know, another failed general, making the comment the other day about Russian troops being uh, that they're conscripts, that they're poorly trained, that they're poorly led. And he's saying these things without any evidence. In fact, the evidence you, you, you can see on some of the videos that populate on Telegram channel, I realize some could be propaganda, it could be manufactured, but when you look at how the, the Russian soldiers are kitted out, just how they're dressed, how they wear their equipment, how they carry themselves, these are not sloppy, incompetent people. And you, you can't fake that. The, you know, they, show, they show a genuine, uh, it reflects good organization and good supply and good training. And, and yet the United States, mili you know, these military leaders, whether it's Petraeus or Hodges or Hurtling and down the list, continue to disparage and dismiss the Russians as being incompetent. And, you know, what's so, what's so maybe funny is not the right word, but what is so strange about this is that over the last 20 years, while we're saying that Russia is some backward economy, it was the United States that had to rely upon the Russian Space Service to take our astronauts to and fro going to the space station because we, the United States, no longer had the capability or the talent to produce the rockets necessary to carry out that mission. The Russians did it in a heartbeat. Went, so that, that, that sort of disconnect from reality where we talk about the Russians as being a bunch of uh, backward, ignorant slobs, and, and yet it's the United States that has lost that actual capability to carry out those missions. That's I, I've never seen anything like it. No, so, no, no, have I. I? I couldn't have imagined it. Larry, where do we go from here? Lots of talk now. I, I mean, there's those who say we're going to be escalating. You know, the F-16s are coming, probably. The Attackham's missiles are coming. So there's that, there's that sort of school. And uh, one gets the sense that, you know, if you're going to pause the offensive, they're going to pause it because they say they need the air cover. And um, that's they're going to wait for the F-16s. <laughs> and when those don't work, do we go no. in ourselves? I mean, is that going to happen or are we going to start to see people push back and say, you know, this has gone far enough. This can't go further. It's becoming really, really dangerous now. Is the political system in the United States capable any longer of making those kind of adjustments? Because I'm starting to have doubts about that. I mean, the political no. system in Britain is not capable of making adjustments. I should say that straight out. Yeah, no, I, I, we're broken. We're as, we're as broken here as you are uh, in the UK. Uh, and it's shocking. There, you, you can't find uh, any significant voice beyond, say, Donald Trump that talks about how foolish this war is in Ukraine and that it's able to be carry that message without being attacked as a Putin uh, supporter or as a purveyor of Russian disinformation. So that continues to dominate here. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very concerned, worried that this is going to continue to escalate. Uh, and that it could, you know, it could get to the point of even uh, being attacks upon the U.S. mainland in response to things the United States will have done or supported in attacking 
uh, Russian territory. Uh, already, uh, I am reliably informed that there are U.S. and other NATO forces that are actually operating weapon systems. I, I think it is uh, U.S. personnel that are actually inside Ukraine. And they're, they're going to offer casualties. They're going to be killed. Mm. Uh, for I, I do not see Russia wanting to take a pause at all. Uh, I think Russia is going to continue to escalate its attacks on these decision-making centers. Mm -hmm. um, it looks like, you, you know, I, I don't know if you've uh, ever seen what all the mission center or the, the tactical operations center or the joint operations center. These are really pretty, uh, they're remarkable places, but they're physical locations where you have television screens uh, covering the front wall and you have, you know, upwards of 100, 200 people that could be crammed in there in rows and desks with computers. And it's from different services and different uh, agencies, intelligence agencies, and it's all designed to integrate information. I'm sure uh, that they've got at least uh, two or three of these operating in Ukraine. And, and that I think you, you commented about that yesterday, Alexander, about that decision-making center that was taken. That, that's exactly what they're talking about, a joint operations center. And I, I think Russia will continue to, to destroy those because once you destroy the leadership then you're going to make it impossible for ukraine to carry out any kind of uh, military operations to the ground you really have to decapitate it i, I think they've they're finally coming to that uh, realization and there's no incentive yet that i see for russia to back off given what is being said and done by the west both in terms of the hostile comments and the continued escalation in, in sending more sophisticated military equipment into the country. So I, you know, I think we're headed for something terrible. Uh, and I completely I, agree. I, I hope I'm wrong. Uh, I completely agree about the Russian side. I mean, uh, Putin had this meeting with the African leaders and they came to him and he said, we, know, we want to talk about peace. He says, look, I'm not, you know, averse <laughs> to talking about peace. But here's the draft treaty I thought I'd negotiated with uh, Zelensky right at the start of the war. We, you know, we basically signed off on it. We, they did sign off on it. I actually withdrew troops from near Kiev in reliance upon that. And then he went back on it. And basically, yeah. Putin was telling the, the African leaders, look, if I've been there before, I'm not going to be I'm not going to have that happen to me a second time. I'm not going to be fooled twice. I mean, there comes a point when trust breaks down so completely that you no longer feel any longer that you can actually conduct meaningful discussions with someone. And can I just say, I mean, I've been going through this morning, plowing through this morning. You see, my, if anybody could bring themselves to get through to that point in my next video. But um, most of the last part of it is, dis is discussing Blinken's visit to China. And again, I think it's been reported correctly because people take everything what, that they want from what the administration is saying. They're not looking at what the Chinese themselves, how they're reporting it. But they're basically, what my impression was that the Chinese were telling Blinken, look, you're now in the last ch chance saloon as far as we're concerned. We've been had by you time and time again. We're going to try one more time to 
conduct some kind of dialogue with you, but don't make any mistake in thinking that that means that we're going to soften our position on anything. We're not, we're, we've made our positions very, very clear, but you've come along and you've told us that you don't want to escalate here, you don't want to escalate there. Well, we're going to see this time whether you actually deliver on that. And if you don't, that's the end. <laughs> that, that was my impression. And he went, he was taken through the mill. He had seven and a half hours with the Chinese foreign minister in a candid discussion. And both you, Larry, and Alex, you know what a candid discussion yeah, is. Yeah. That appears in a readout, both the American and the Chinese readout talk about that. Seven and a half hours candid discussion with the Chinese foreign minister. Then he's hauled off and he meets Wang Yi, who is the head of the Politburo, who's in overall charge. And he goes through that all over again, not perhaps for seven and a half hours, but the um, Chinese readout there is even more scorching, if possible. Mm -hmm. And then he's brought in before the big man, before Xi Jinping himself. And that's a much shorter meeting. And Xi Jinping says, look, you've had these two tough guys. And yeah. they were there. They were there in the meeting, Wang Yi and uh, uh, Gu Xian, uh, uh, whatever he said, the Chinese Prime Minister, were both there in the meeting with Xi Jinping. He says to him, look, you, we, you've been through that. You've heard what we have to say. Now go back to Washington. Tell your people there, this is what we want. We want, we're absolutely ready to work with you. But it cannot be the way it was before. So... Mm -hmm. And, and and that was my impression. So uh, sorry, that's a bit of a that's a bit of a, a, a diversion. But I do think this is important, actually. Oh because, no, yeah. Uh, um, because uh, you know, and and they also said to him, "Look, you know, don't be under under any misunderstanding. We're going to protect our core interests, and Taiwan for us is the core of our core interests. Mm -hmm. It's there in the readout, by the way." We are yeah. not prepared to negotiate or compromise or move or retreat in any way on Taiwan. Now, whether whether anybody in the U.S. gets this, I really don't know. Whether yeah. Blinken gets this, I really don't know. But as I said, it's clear to me that just as Putin has had enough, and that was what I got, that was very much the impression I got from his very polite, always very polite man, and he likes them anyway, with the African leaders. I think the Chinese are coming very close to the same point. Yeah. I, the diplomatic expression was frank exchange of views. Yeah, you know? <laughs> Which means you're, you're, call, you're insulting each other's mother's sexual history. That mm. is, is sort of the way it goes. No, you know, th there is a divorce in reality on what happened with Blake. Um, I, you know, I was sort of amused listening to Blinken said, you know, reiterating the one China policy. OK, that's been the policy for 52 years. But the reaction in the United States, it's being portrayed that Blinken blinked. He sold out to the Chinese. He surrendered that we, we we're no longer going to pursue uh, the Biden uh, are selling out to the Chinese and they're not going to defend the independence of Taiwan. And I just, in fact, literally 20 minutes before coming on your show this morning, I had a call from a buddy of mine, retired DEA, and he was just outraged by what Blinken had done. And I said, 
I said, Art, do you understand that when Nixon did the one China policy, agreed to it over 50 years ago, that we recognized that Taiwan was part of China? And he goes, what? Now, we're talking a guy that's had 30 years within the U.S. government. And I, I guarantee you, his view is not uh, unique. It's, it's the common view, of, I think, in the vast majority of the American public. And that's where you, you're going to have this real disconnect. The Chinese expect, rightly so, that the United States is going to adhere to what Richard Nixon agreed to over 50 years ago. And yet the political pressure, the domestic political messaging that's being done is emphasizing, oh, we've got to stand up for Taiwan's independence. I think the only thing that will save us from ourselves is uh, the, the elections in Taiwan will install a government that's uh, willing to reach out and reconcile with the uh, Chinese mainland. Uh, that may save us from catastrophe. Otherwise, uh, these people uh, that are running you know, it's not just the Democrats, so the Republicans as well. Uh, they seem hell bent on getting into a war somewhere with either Russia, China, or both, without even thinking through the consequences of what that means. Yeah, I'm going to ask one last question, Larry, because I know you 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 have to mix you mix with lots and lots of people in Washington. I mean, Seymour Hersh, who I who's who's I believe who's a friend of yours, as I understand. Yeah. He, Seymour Hersh has been saying recently that you know that there is growing unrest within the intelligence, some of the top people in the intelligence community, that they're getting very frustrated at the fact that there are people uh, close to the president in the administration who are making decisions on. I would, you know, I, ideology sometimes I think gives it a more dignified quality than it really is. I yeah. mean, I don't quite know what to call it, but they have a set of ideas which are sort of immutable, and which they don't really want to argue, and a set of beliefs that are immutable, and that there are still some people in the intelligence community who are trying to cut through this and explain, look, the world isn't quite as you want it to be. It's, it's, more, it's, more, it's more involved than that. There are other people with different points of view, and they can't just be disregarded. You just can't sweep them away. Mm -hmm. Do you actually get the sense, the same sense, that there is now some opposition building up within the government, within the, the larger government against the, pro the policies of this administration, and that we, they might actually push back in some way? I mean, just, just, I mean, no. I'm not asking you to obviously to tell us anything that you can't tell us, but just, just your, your general feeling. Yeah, no, the short answer is yes. In fact, Actually, I, I, I sent, I don't know if you saw the picture. I was with Cy Hirsch a week ago Saturday. I was up in the Northern Virginia area, took him out to play golf. He's 86 years old. He can still hit the ball. And, you know, he's, he's, he's the same sort of uh, wild man that he's always been. But as we talked about this, uh, the fact that there are people in the intelligence community now coming directly to him, is a, is a sign of the alarm that exists within some sectors in both the intelligence and military community. Uh, because Sai was very clear, uh, as we talked about it, that uh, the, the Biden team genuinely believe that the way to ensure Biden's reelection is to make him a wartime president. 
which means you have to get into a war. And therefore, because all the wartime presidents got reelected there, this, this entire mess internationally is being driven with uh, solely by political considerations, no consideration of what this actually means for the strategic standing of the United States in, in the global community. Mm-hmm. No under no appreciation for what it means for the for the international economy as we see de-dollarization accelerate across the board. It is craven politics and it, it it's it's disgusting. And so there are elements both within the military, within the intelligence community, but unfortunately these are not in leadership positions. No. And, and I mean- go ahead. I just wanted to say, I mean, a wartime, a, 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 a wartime president, a war leader. I mean, it's like I think Lincoln actually said sometime. What was was it Lincoln who said, you know, if you want to be a you know military dictator, then you know first give me a victory. I yeah. mean, that pre presupposes that that his wartime leader can actually win his war. I mean, this this world that we well, first of all, you should never start wars on that kind of basis. I mean, that's a reckless and incredibly stupid thing to do but we are one we're in a world of nuclear weapons we're dealing with nuclear powers russia has more nuclear weapons than the united states does china has a significant number but in any event and besides that i mean what if you lose this war i mean that's not going to that's not going to help you as president if that's what you want to be i mean lbj went down because he wasn't winning the war in vietnam and he would probably would have won as a if he would have won if he'd been a peacetime president. So I mean, it, it makes no sense to me politically. It makes no sense to me electorally, and it is taking catastrophic risks yeah. um, for humanity and for the United States. Yeah. No. This um, this failure to appreciate how this war can unfold. It, it, it really hasn't. The United States so insulated. We, we've, we've had the benefit of geography because the oceans separate us. And apart from, you know, Canada and Mexico really do not pose a military threat. So the United States has enjoyed this luxury. Um, I, I think one of the issues that needs to be uh, further discussed, and I'd encourage you guys to do it, um, is... There is, I think, a debate right now among the whether or not this the U.S. belief, and you hear it from NATO, this thing will drag out. We're looking at this war going on for a, a year or two. It could drag it out. It's going to go on. Personally, I don't see how that's possible or feasible. Um, it, 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 that assumption of dragging it out assumes that, one, there's going to be a manpower base in Ukraine that can continue to throw bodies into this uh, conflict. Uh, I don't see that. Two, that there is the infrastructure for training and sustaining them. I don't see that. And three, and most importantly, that the United States and NATO, that their checkbooks are going to remain open and they're somehow going to find these magic factories to produce the weapon systems to continue to supply Ukraine so it can stay in the fight. That, I think, is the real uh, uh, dose of reality that's going to come crashing down on people. That the, the United States economically and Europe economically, they can't sustain this. 
and and it's going to definitely finally erupt and have political consequences. So that's why I don't I don't think that this. But the West is sort of counting on. Okay, well, if this counteroffensive fails, will drag out the war. Maybe that will weaken Russia because they go back to the what happened to the Soviets in Afghanistan, seeing that that prolonged conflict weakened the Soviet Union, and they're sort of hoping that they can do the same thing to Russia today. And I think it's it, it's nonsensical. And it's it's based in completely in a misunderstanding of everything about Russia's economic and military structure, and, and its political and its mood. <laughs> I mean, this is yeah. a fundamental. I mean, the Russians didn't care about Afghanistan. I mean, they were wondering why their soldiers were there and why they were dying there. It was, but Ukraine, they do care about, yeah. and we made it so that they care about it even more. I mean, it's for them now. It's become a real struggle for their own survival. That's why tens of thousands of people, the Russian government, of course, is telling us this, but I've no reason to doubt this, why tens of thousands of people are now volunteering to sign up. Mm -hmm. And again, if you knew anything about Russia, you would know that would happen. If you knew anything about Russia, you would know you would not should not strike into a place like Belgorod. <laughs> this is exactly the kind of reaction it's going, it, it is going to provoke. And I completely agree with you, by the way. I don't think this is going to drag on for years and years. And I think that if it does, which I don't for a moment believe, then it's not going to make the Russians weaker. It's probably going to make them stronger and angrier in a kind of a way. But it's going to make us weaker <laughs> because already we're running through our weapon systems very fast. Presumably, you know, if you don't have artillery shells on hand, you can't train with what artillery you've got left. I mean, I, I mean, this is my guess now, but this is just my own assumption. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but I mean, I, I you know, I, I would have thought that it's ultimately weakening us faster. Well, and it's making them stronger. That's what I would say. So yeah. uh, a, a long wall, we're not going to get it anyway. But if it were to happen, it would be worse for us um, than a diplomatic compromise now. But I agree. I don't think there is any real uh, I don't think there's any real ideas for a diplomatic compromise on anything like right. the kind of basis that the Russians at the moment would accept. And I think that is I think that's where we are. Now, that's going to be my last comment, because we've been chatting for an hour and 13 minutes. And um, I, I'd like to pass on to Alex in a moment. But just quickly, um, Larry, do you have any anything to add to? Just well, the, what the I one thing I, yeah, I think the one thing people need to really focus on yeah. is that. Putin is not obsessed with this. He's not consumed by it. He's not like LBJ, the, the, the whole Vietnam thing weighed upon him like the sword of Damocles. Instead, Putin, he looks at that, but he's looking at it in the broader global perspective of building this alliance with China, of continuing, I'll call it the diplomatic offensive by Russia with Lavrov, you know, globetrotting and you know, being being the consummate ambassador of goodwill for Russia around the world, and that that Putin recognizes that this conflict in Ukraine is just but one element of a broader conflict with the West that is reorienting and shuffling the the, the world order into into something new, which we have not seen since. You know, this is unprecedented in our lifetime. Oh, the, the system that was set up at the end of World War II, it's, it's coming to an end. And Russia and China are in the process of building something new. And the West 
at least in the United States, I don't know about Europe, but at least in the United States, we fail to grasp and appreciate what's happening. We still think, oh, yeah, we've got the money and we're, we're the wealthiest and we can, you know, this is just a minor bump in the road. I don't, I think it, it, that's a, a terrible mistake on our part. Yeah. Alex? You have uh, 15, 20 minutes, Larry, to, sure. to sure. answer some questions. Is that all right? Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's go through some questions. I'm just going to start from the top and I'll try to run through as many questions as, uh, as I can. And uh, let's begin. Paulie says, watch yesterday's UK column. Mark Anderson at minute 14 shows Ukraine's transition has been planned for years, as was the coup with Dutch involved. Pauly Sparky says, make Ukraine Russia again. <laughs> see, uh, Radovich said, let's remember Gonzalo Lira. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Let us indeed. Absolutely. Uh, Ricardo says, psychologically, the Ukrainians are totally winning. Psychologically, totally win. I, I, can I just can yeah. I just make quickly before Larry goes, I think that this is where the offensive, if it's called off, if it fails, is going to make a huge psychological difference. It's going to make a big psychological difference in Russia because, well, they've been hearing about this offensive. They've been hearing about these Western systems. They'll now know that these systems are not invincible. The tanks burn. <laughs> the infantry fighting vehicles burn. That will give them renewed confidence. On the part of the Ukrainians, I think this is going to be more than anything else the event that will make them wonder, start to wonder, whether Ukraine can really win the war. And I don't know whether um, you, or you, you, you guys have been here seeing this, but there's been more and more reports now that more and more Ukrainian soldiers are now starting okay. to surrender in larger groups. I mean, this, which has not been something that we've seen very much happen in this war up to this point. It's not yet a flood. It's more a trickle, but it's beginning to get a little bit more than a trickle. Anyway, that's my own view. Yeah, I mean, just the, the, the media narrative is being forced, being shifted by events on the ground. Uh, that you can't cover up the number of leopard tanks that were destroyed, visibly destroyed. Uh, you can pretend that they're not there, but, you know, this is... This is one of those Baghdad Bob moments where he continued to insist there were no tanks in Iraq. And there, here comes the picture. You see the tanks rolling through the streets of Baghdad. So, yeah. yeah. sense says brothers slaughtering each other. Globalists grin. Yeah. 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 Paul Walker says, but Ukraine states it's not started yet. When will the UK stop funneling weapons to this failed cause? When we run out, which will be very soon, because we've almost yeah. run out already. Literally, we are now cannibalizing, apparently, our own Challenger 2 tanks. I mean, we, we, we don't build. This is the crazy things about this. We don't make tank guns any longer. So when a tank gun, and these are rifle guns, so apparently they wear out faster. Larry, you probably know more. more we definitely yeah. know more about this than me. But when they wear out, apparently the only thing you can do is you can detach them from the one tank and plonk them on the other. So actually, yeah. our, our, our fleet of Leopard, of Challenger 2s, which is never very big, it's about 150, is diminishing all the time. And this conflict, if we're going to keep these tank challenges in in um, Ukraine operating, is going, to, is going to cause critical problems for the rest of the tank fleet. Yeah. 
said diversity and training is our strength, bro. <laughs> Sparky says during the Cold War, U.S. citizens didn't hate Russians. They wanted to save them from communism. Nowadays, nowadays, hate is encouraged. Now that that's the thing that that really puzzles me. Um, I, mean, I understand the animus at Russia if Russia was behaving like Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge, you know, to, to carrying out these horrific massacres and murdering millions of people. But, but that hasn't been Russia. And in fact, you know, when you go back and look at Putin's approach to Biden in December of 2021, it wasn't belligerent or threatening. It was, it was normal. Hey, can, you know, look, we, we've got some legitimate concerns here. And this is what we want to try to negotiate a solution. And this, this hatred directed at Putin, I would really like to go back and try to figure out when the worm finally turned. Because initially, it was embraced by the West. And I don't know what was the exact moment when, when they decided to shift the narrative. But all of a sudden, uh, Putin became Voldemort. And... Uh, uh, you know, he had to be stopped at any price. And, and that's where you saw this proliferation of intelligence operations, both to, you know, suggest that Russia was uh, poisoning lymphatic gold, uh, polonium, and, you know, a whole series of things to portray the Russians in the most evil, dastardly way possible. I, I don't, there has not been the concrete actions that would uh, justify that kind of view. Yeah, I think Sparky uh, actually said in a in a question yesterday in our live stream with uh, in a live stream with uh, Barnes. He said yeah. uh, Putin derangement syndrome preceded Trump derangement syndrome. Let me know, Sparky, yeah. if I got that right. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've had Putin derangement syndrome for a while now. Yeah, 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 and yeah. it's it, puzz it puzzles me. Um, I, I I don't because you can't point to anything objective an objective fact that would justify, you know, that this attitude towards. Um, well, it's... when he when he pre when he prevented the uh, the West from pillaging Russia, I think that was it. Yeah. Yes. In general, yeah, I mean, general, can I just say, the, I mean, yeah. you know, because of somebody who followed British media very closely, uh, uh, the first virulently virulently anti-Putin articles in. British media, and I think a lot of this started in Britain, actually, began to appear in the autumn of 1999, that early on. This is when he was only acting prime minister. Yeltsin was still president. He'd just been appointed. But he was. it was clear that, you know, the Russians were going from the back foot to the front foot on the uh, fighting in Chechnya. And if you actually go to the old yellowing copies of the... British newspapers in your library, you find that the editorials there were already ferocious. There was something mm -hmm. about him that really, really made the British very angry. Um, even at that point, maybe it was, you know, they had contacts with the oligarchs who were nervous about Putin, maybe the intelligence people, because the Russians were rolling up apparently British spy cells in London, in, in, in Moscow at about that time. Maybe they, that was what made them angry. But with the British, it's always been there right from the start. Yeah. Very puzzling. Yeah. 
Jay Galt says, someone asked DeSantis if he ever considered reading the British media as an alternative form of torture in Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> now, yeah. I, I, I put myself through that torture every day. The, yeah, the British media is, is so bad. Uh, Alexander, on my video uh, today, Alexander Larry, I talked yeah. about in my clown world, the, tele, the Telegraph article about how Russia, the leadership in Russia is so upset with the results of the counter, yeah, that they're no. that they're hitting the bottle, and yeah. I mean, I don't know the Telegraph. I always thought the Telegraph was like yeah. the gold standard. Yeah. Once upon a time, yeah. Well, that that article the other I wrote about the other day, this fellow Owen Marshall Matthews, who he had this thing about Putin has disappeared and he's nowhere to be seen, and it was like, dude. Turn on the TV. He's ubiquitous. Come on. He was, he was four days at St. Petersburg giving three-hour speeches. What are you talking about? Yeah, I'm going, my God. You know, well, I think you got to say, he must be on some very powerful uh, hallucinogens to be to have kind of perception. My goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Ricardo says, oh, perception management is really the only thing they have here in Canada. People really believe Ukraine is winning. They don't care about facts. Yeah. yeah. That, I mean, that is that has been what I, I find most remarkable about the, the psychological operations, uh, this information warfare that's been carried out, not so much against Russia, but against the, the domestic population in the United Kingdom, in the United States, and in Canada, that it has it has completely, you know, the average person they hear it and they and, and they get on board yeah. with what is just a blatant lie. And when you try to educate them or you try to make the alternative point, I mean, I've been attacked as a Putin apologist, or well, how much money are the Russians paying me to say these things? And it's like. Yeah, haven't gotten that yet. No, the, the the news here is talking about uh, just the other day they were talking about uh, Ukraine uh, advances in the in the counteroffensive, and that <laughs> the Russians have been unable to destroy any of the NATO weapons. And I'm like, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> <laughs> we we're living in two different uh, universes. Yeah. Anyway, Sparky says Millie is a weakling. That's how he got there. You, you know, it, it's, it, and it's not just Millie. If you go back and look at the uh, the lead up to the goal, to the war in 2003 in Iraq, you did not have a single senior military person resign their commi their commission and protest. Everybody went along because they didn't want to jeopardize their retirement. They didn't want to jeopardize their potential mm -hmm. to snag a good job in the corporate world after mm -hmm. they left the military. So what we've had is just a um, a string of cowardice. It's quite a contrast. You know, we we uh, had the sad news this last week of the death of Daniel Ellsberg. Mm. Uh, you know, he lived a long, good life, but you know, he had the courage to come out and blow the whistle at a time when he literally put himself at risk of being in prison for the rest of his life. But he felt so strongly about it, and so it's you know, I I, I was fortunate to have had some contact with the man and. What a what a marvelous human being he was. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oksana says, thank you for telling the truth. I live in the U.S. for a long time, but it's really hard to be a Russian here nowadays. 
I'm sure it's even harder to be a Russian in Britain, by the way. Yeah. But I will say this. There was one incident which my wife saw when um, there was um, a, a, Rus a, a Russian who, um, a, and in, in a cafe. And apparently two young British men got up and said, you know, we want you to know that not all British people feel the way that you might think. And, you know, that you do, you do get flashes like that also. NGS says, if the offensive fails, will the Western public know? It's hmm. no. a good question. Very true. Hmm. Uh, Ricardo says, never underestimate Joe's ability to F things up. <laughs> yeah, cut, quoting, uh, quoting Robert Gates, the former uh, head of the CIA and the uh, Secretary of Defense, yeah. one of the few things I've agreed with Gates on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Gestros Panama says, have you seen the Wall Street Journal leak of a China base in Cuba? Yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a, I really am amused by this thing. Guess what, people? Every country in the world, if, particular countries of the status of like the United States and Russia and Germany and the United Kingdom, have intelligence operations where they try to collect information from other countries. Come on, grow up. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the world. <laughs> I just, I, I really, I find it so ridiculous and absurd. This, this is these kinds of leaks. I think are designed to try to create antagonism, and and try to gin up animus towards China, as opposed to saying, hey, let's just recognize this is the normal course of doing business. In fact, there's some benefit from these kinds of intelligence right. operations because collecting information, they have a better sense of what the country's actually doing. Now, I think I'm, I'm afraid with respect to the United States, the Chinese are gonna look and say, my God, they really are this crazy. <laughs> you know, they really, they, this is, they're not just kidding. They're this nuts. Hmm. Take a pick 1313 says, Get a, getting along with Russia and China is so obviously the best thing for America and the West and the world. What is crazy is that we let the military industrial complex and greedy globalists to tell us otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, uh, going back to John Lennon's song, Imagine. I mean, can we imagine where we're not having to spend a trillion dollars in the United States on defense systems that most of them don't work anyway? And that instead of having this military conflict with Russia and China, that we've, we find a way to you know, get along and actually do something for the benefit of the people of the world. Uh, this is uh, the death and destruction of, you know, particularly U.S. foreign policy over the last 30 years. Uh, we've left a we've left a bloody trail around the world, and it's it's, it's uh, unfortunate. Ricardo Alfonso says Putin went after the oligarch class, the one unforgivable sin, and he wasn't mm. selected by the West. Yeah, yeah, I think. I think there is a, a strong element of truth to this, actually. I think, I think if you want me to say what I think was the cause that turned people against him in the West as well as in, uh, you know, the, the, the liberals in Russia, it was, if, if they really are liberals, it was precisely this. And, of course, you're talking about British politics. Remember, the oligarch, Russian oligarchs who leave Russia often come to Britain. They become established themselves here. They have great influence on the Conservative Party and the Labour parties. They're major political donors. This cannot be underestimated. In fact, I actually have 
knowledge about this, which I can't disclose, but I know of people who, fr from both parties who wanted to push back on this, and they've been told you can't do that because um, our donors won't be happy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Tim Gibson says, I remember Obama getting jealous of Putin's fame around 2011. This could be when the worm turned. Well, I remember the Putin also became a target with the Sochi Olympics back in, uh, you know, uh, the West. And and again, one of the themes that emerged out of that was um, condemning Russia because of its stance towards the LGBT LGBTQ yeah. community. Well, it it was the Sochi, Larry, wasn't it? Uh, at the time of the Sochi Olympics, uh, that that was uh, Maidan coup, yeah. wasn't it? Two thousand. Yeah. Yeah, my son was yeah. coinciding with that at the same time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, Chris. Yeah, so I don't think that's a coincidence that no, while no. Putin was was uh, was focused on the all of Russia was focused on the Olympics. You had yeah. all, all the Maidan uh, coup stuff brewing. Uh, Chris says, "Greetings from Cyprus. Our get together in liberated Odessa next summer is still on. Meeting under the statue of Catherine the Great, free Gonzalo." Hmm. They've taken Should, down the statue, haven't they? They have indeed, absolutely, yes. Yeah. I mean, the founder of the city, this was, this was, by the way, the Guardian justified that as an act of decolonization. Yeah. Um, this is Taliban-esque. It's like the Taliban had, you know, yeah. trying to eradicate history. Yeah. Unbelievable. Uh, let's see here. From uh, Paul, footage of Russian medics uh, tending to abandon Ukrainians. 42 PD BDE is composed of ill medically unfit troops in Latvia footage and burning NATO equipment. Also several, several challengers reported destroyed. I haven't heard about, I haven't heard about the challengers. I, I, I've not seen Russian claims that they've destroyed challengers. In fact, there's a, there's another report which tells, which is, I mean, even, even more in some ways, I mean, it's both laughable and tragic and it shows you the absurdity of the situation that the British yeah. are now telling the uh, Ukrainians, don't commit the challenges to the battle. <laughs> we can't afford to have pictures of them being destroyed. I mean, that would be too difficult to sell, even in Britain. Yeah. Nikolai said, yeah, this counteroffensive be pushed by the West to get rid of all the males that will turn to the West when they realize they've been duped. It's going too far now. I mean, I think... Yeah. Uh, Garland says, the US actually builds an old VW Beetle and charges the government to the price of an Lamborghini. And it's Garland great to have has a way with words. Yes, Garland, it's great to see to have you on. And may I just say you've been on a roll altogether. Yes. Uh, Rafiq says, question, will uh, Zelensky eventually strike a deal with Russia and China once Russia decisively takes eastern Ukraine and perhaps Kiev and Kharkiv? Now I don't I don't think uh, Zelensky has any way out of this other than do I either try to abandon the country alive or he will uh, not leave the country. He'll be taken out. Um, this is, uh, you know, I think a moment, a moment will come if, if Ukraine continues to try to launch attacks inside of Russia, then there will come a point at which I, I think Russia will take out the, the, the ultimate decision-making centers in Kiev. Yeah. And if that involves killing uh, Zelensky in the process, that will happen. Rafiq says, uh, question, now that the ground has dried and the counteroffensive largely is successful, will Russia finally launch its own offensive to end the war? Or will they continue to grind down the Ukrainian army? I, I think they're going to go with the continued grinding. 
uh, for mm. right now. There's a, there is no imperative for them to launch uh, this uh, big big army uh, offensive and the maneuver of the troops. I, because I think they're going to keep them in reserve. They want to see what NATO is going to do. They're not going to launch forward and then be in a position where NATO could actually attack and then you know Russia would be in a, in a forced into a tactical retreat at some points. So I, you know they're uh, up to this point, I've been I've been impressed with um, the Russian military leadership. Uh, yeah, they've made some mistakes, but they're human beings for God's sake. And there is there is not a blueprint out there to tell you how to do this. They're doing this on the fly. And they're fighting not just Ukraine, they're fighting the best that the United States and Europe has to offer. Yeah. Uh, Gesteros Panama says, if Putin was the fiend the West says, V. Duland would have been poisoned on the very day she handed out cookies in Maidan. Ricardo says, I can only imagine what the Ukraine reaction will look like when they finally open their eyes, like the Chechens. Well, I mean, that's and that's the thing that people like the West appreciate. Russia went through that extended uh, war with the Chechens, mm. and now look at the reconciliation between the Chechens and the Russian people, where the you know don't have this tension between Islam and Christianity that you do in the West. Uh, they they found both an accommodation and, if you will, a celebration of each other. So it's. You know, it shows that even out of something as terrible as that uh, war in Chechnya was, that uh, Russia has figured out how to produce a reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Jack says, those that are familiar with the U.S. military officer corps know that anyone in Milley's position is a politician. He was appointed, not promoted. Yeah. Uh, No sense says, is the industrious American spirit dead? I believe you guys discussed Uh, that. It's dying. Yeah. Uh, Jack says, after a certain height in ranks, officers are not selected by the DOD, but by Congress. Nowadays, these are yes men who operate politically, not militarily. Now, well, it's always been uh, the politics involved. I think if you look at Doug McGregor, you know, he left the army as a colonel. He was never promotable um, because he didn't have the right connections. His roommate at West Point was Stan McChrystal. Now, McChrystal became a three-star general, I believe, uh, or four-star. And, uh, you know, McChrystal w- did not have the intellectual firepower of Doug McGregor by any stretch. Mm. And yet, McChrystal's dad had been a general. So, you know, the old friends, it's funny that the United States like criticize other countries for uh, the incestuous behavior of the elites while ignoring our own gross incest here. Yeah. Sparky says most in the Pentagon nowadays got there via the F up move up principle. Lada Moreau says Russia has talented engineers and scientists because in schools and universities do serious emphasis on math, chemistry, and physics education, unlike in the States. Mm-hmm. Well said. Garland says Russia builds lots of shovels and washing machines. <laughs> he's trolling he's trolling (laughs) and uh, Rafiq says COVID the US was financially gutted by big banks and oligarchs in the Weimar pre-collapse stage hope we don't wind up with American fear recall Aesop's fable killing the goose that laid the golden eggs 
I think we shouldn't push these p- comparisons too far. I mean, bear in mind, Weimar Germany was a major industrial power. I mean, Germany hadn't deindustrialized in the 1920s. They went right. through a very, very serious business business recession, to put it mildly, in the in the early 30s. But I mean, the Germany had an industrial base. It had millions of workers. It had deep scientific engineering skills, and it also had a political culture, which was completely different from that of the United States today and from the u.s tradition which is i will always insist ultimately a democratic one in germany you couldn't say that to anything like the same degree in the 1920s so i i don't think that we should push these parallels i don't think we're going to look at a figure like that emerging in the u.s i think the, the dangers actually are more insidious and more difficult in some ways to turn around precisely because you can't have a single individual who however damaging once you take him off the scene um you are left with you know you're left with nothing he leaves nothing behind him in america it's a, it's, a, it's a more complex more um interesting society in so many different ways and i speak as somebody who once intended to do a phd on precisely this period in german history actually i should quickly say <laughs> right uh Larry, can you do a few more questions? I sure. We've kept, we've kept you yeah. over an hour 30, but let's, let's yeah. just a couple of more and we'll wrap it up. Uh, Mobius Zero, it's a two-part yeah. question. Can China survive a war against the U.S. on sites like Quora? For example, people there think all you need to beat China is to block the Straits of Malacca and create an anti-China coalition. To add to my first point, would it would it really be that easy to bring down china block the straits gather all who have a problem with china japan and india etc what do you think well the, the war games that have been played out uh, for the united states in a conflict with china always come out with china winning uh, the the ability of the united states to project military force against china is, is pretty limited if, if they come up with the carrier battle groups those are extremely vulnerable to the hypersonic missiles that not only China has, but Russia's supplying, or as I'm pretty sure has pledged to supply China with what it needs to defend against that kind of threat. So that leaves the United States with having to rely upon the submarine fleet and fixed wing aircraft, which again will be equally vulnerable to uh, air defense systems because uh, China has robust air defense systems as well. So there, there really is no way for the United States to project that kind of military force to be affected. And yet, part of the problem is in the United, within the military circles, particularly in that Indo PACOM, I guess they now call it, uh, are some people believe oh, we, that China is a hollow shell. All we need to do is punch through it, and we can prevail. Uh, a friend of mine who's involved with the intelligence operations. I asked him, are we getting ready to do something stupid? And he said, yes. And I said, is it Ukraine or China or both? And he came back, both. So uh, not, not good news. Yeah. Tabernacle says uh, America G7 can play an extremely productive and positive role within the multipolar frame. Sometimes you've got to take a step back to move forward. 
Yeah. You're so, you're so completely right. Yeah, I wish, wish our leaders were as sane yeah. and rational as you. <laughs> Ricardo Alfonso says to go to war with Russia, NATO would have to have been staging equipment and men for the last year or so, and the Russians would be attacking those targets. Boots on the ground won't be as easy as they make it out to be. Yeah, well, you know, the United States has already deployed. You've got the 82nd and the 101st Airborne, uh, respectively, I think 101st is in Poland, 82nd in uh, Romania. Again, it's not a significant force to actually change anything in the war other than provide a predicate for the United States to get involved if we inserted those troops and then the Russians started killing. Um, you also have the missile batteries, the, the former Aegis systems that were deployed in Romania and Poland as well. So, you know, and unfortunately, uh, NATO, actually, the army that NATO would need to rely on in order to fight Russia is the Turkish army. Because the Turks, after the United States, have the largest uh, troop, a number of uh, soldiers, and I don't think that's going to happen at all. Elena says, Westerners have forgotten the turbulence in Kazakhstan. 2022, I find our lack of history, memory, generalized and unsettling. How did the West manage to make us forget what happened yesterday as if history has no importance? Oh, they don't teach it. They hardly teach it in Britain. Um, um, And it's disappearing as a topic from British universities as well, so so I'm told, which astonishes me because that was my background. I mean, I, I, I was a history graduate. Yeah. Controlled demolitions. Yeah. Come to the United States, go to any state and ask, the, just grab somebody off the street and ask them where the state capital of that particular state is. They'll be hard pressed to tell you. I bet you 80 percent of the Americans, like the 80 percent of the people in Florida, wouldn't be able to identify Tallahassee on the map, much less know where Kazakhstan is. Come on. <laughs> Controlled Demolition says, when I lived in Hiroshima, I saw student athletes from China, North Korea, from all over the region making origami cranes and leaving them in Peace Park. That shout out for Gonzalo. Absolutely. Rafik Adams says, Alex, the gray, how hopeful are you that Putin and or Chinese can independently negotiate peace with Ukraine if neocons continues to escalate despite deceptive, decisive losses? E.g. Iran, Saudi, Yemen. Is that addressed to you, Alex, baby? Yeah, I don't... Um, how hopeful are you that Putin and the Chinese can independently negotiate with Ukraine? I mean, I don't think... I mean, I'll, I'll venture my own view. I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, I yeah, think I mean, that yeah. Zelensky is not going to negotiate with the Chinese or the Russians um, because the, 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 the people in Washington who control him won't let him. That's what Putin told the African leaders. I'm sure that's the message that the Chinese official who met with uh, with, uh, Zelensky, was it Li Hui, Uh, uh, will have been communicating back to Beijing, that this is a person who is incapable of making these kind of decisions now. I don't know what Larry thinks. Yeah, well, what is, you know, Russia is, is the other part of this equation. What does Russia want in terms of negotiations? I think the minimum Russia is going to say, okay, one, we want the NATO forces out of Romania and Poland, not just out of Ukraine, out of Romania and Poland. Two, we want NATO to stop conducting military exercises that have Russia as the target on our borders, on the country. Stop that. 
Three, withdraw those missile batteries that are in Romania and Poland. Yeah. That just for starters. And, and then the guarantees they need that the Russian-speaking population in, in Ukraine is no longer going to be targeted and, uh, and discriminated against. So, uh, you know, I don't, I don't see Russia coming off those at all. I think, I think the Russian position from a negotiated standpoint has hardened, not softened, as a result of the events over the last year and a half. Yeah. ADEX says Biden forced an end to the rail strike in the U.S. preventing workers from getting sick leave. Are we paying for sick leave for Ukrainian civil service and rail drivers would be going? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know either, but I mean, we, uh, the U.S. does pay a lot of the salaries in Ukraine now. But what whether they pay sick leave? I mean, I have no idea. I, mean, <laughs> yeah, I imagine they pay all of the government, all the government salaries. Well, they, they do, pay. they do, they do, absolutely, yes. Elsa says, if Biden misses some steps one day and can't get up again, will he still hold telephone calls like solution? And the war continues as before because the deep state runs it. No change. Yeah, this the United States certainly appears like a follow-up uh, sequel to the movie A Weekend at Bernie's, yeah. where the, the two guys hauled around the corpse for a weekend and pretended it was alive. Uh, we, we now almost have a president in that kind of situation where, uh, you know, the guy doesn't ha- he's not compass Memphis. And and yeah. so, you know, it's, and it's, it's frightening because to be in a situation where you need to have some adult in the room that's going to, you know, there's always eager staffers that come in with a bad idea. And you always have to have an adult that's going to say, no, thanks, but we're not doing that. God, God save the queen. Larry. <laughs> <laughs> the New York Times is so re- strange. That was so strange. I mean, that, that got the headlines here in Britain, unsurprising. Yeah. Yeah, let's see. The NYT is reporting that the skipper and Gilligan have both decided to transition <laughs> over <laughs> And we'll do two more, two more. Thomas Bergman says, will Russia reopen the northern front to capture Kharkiv after Wagner is completely refreshed, after Wagner is completely refreshed? I don't think any of us knows what yeah. the Russians are going to do. I mean, I, I, I think that they get, they've obviously got their plans, but they're not sharing it with me, certainly. They're not so we, for me. Yeah. So whatever questions we didn't get to, we're going to answer in a dedicated uh, show. But let's just finish off with this one final question. I think we got to pretty much all the questions, mm. I believe. Uh, Death Dealer says, when do you think Ukraine will get the F-16s? I, I think probably by September. Yeah. That, 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 that's what I've heard as well. Gentlemen, that was a fantastic live stream. Thank you very much, Larry. It's an really honor as always to be with you guys. I, mm-hmm. you're, you're my, I'm, I'm watching you daily anyway, so I always get a little frustrated if you're late in the day. <laughs> Glad we got this done early in the morning. <laughs> Everybody watching this show, Sonar21 is the blog. The link is in the description box down below, and I will have it as a pinned comment as well when this stream concludes. Larry Johnson, thank you very, very much for joining us. Alexander McCurris in London, of course. Thank you very much, Alexander. Thank you to our moderators, Valies in the house with us, Zariel, William, Justice. Who else was helping us moderate? I hope I'm not missing anybody. I always get nervous if I miss shouting out to our great moderator, GEC812. Great to have you with us as well. I think I saw Reckless Abandon also moderating. Thank you to our moderators. 
Thank you to everyone watching us on the Duran.locals.com. Not artificial. Thank you very much for your support. Thank you, Grapes, for that screenshot of Larry, myself, and Alexander in the Duran. Thank you very much for that. To everyone watching us on Rockfin, Odyssey, Rumble, YouTube. Thanks a lot. Fellas, any final thoughts before we sign off for the day? Oh, we're in a pivotal moment in history. If we can get through this one, which I still think we will, I think things will start to get easier. But we do have to get through this particular time. And I've never known the quality of political leadership in the West to be as bad as this. And when I say I've never known, not in my lifetime, not in, I think, Western history. Well, and, and I think what you guys do, uh, yeah. other people like uh, Carlin and Nixon you know, Judge Napolitano, the, this alternative media that's out there with podcasts, with Redacted, uh, Clayton, uh, it is, it's, it's really, it is indispensable because the conventional media is no longer willing to cover and trust that. And people are desperate for truth. So I just, I thank you guys for the courage of what you do. It's very important. And we thank you for your courage too, Larry, which I, we know we, we know how much it's required to be able to do it. And as I say, can I just say again, repeat to everybody, Sonar 21, go to it. It's, it's, it's concise, it's clear, it's, it's, it's very punchy sometimes. And you learn an awful lot from it there. Not just about the war, which you do, but also about what's going on in Washington. And we haven't talked about, you know, Durham report and all of that. But oh yeah. If you want to, if you want to get, if you want to get a good perspective on all those things, also. That's a whole other live stream. An whole other <laughs> live stream. Yeah, yeah. If you want to get your perspective on that as well, from you know somebody who understands this world, um, go there as well. Yep. Free Assange. Shout out Gonzalo Lira as well. Don't forget about Gonzalo. Take care, everybody.